Welcome back to CFO Weekly, where we're talking with financial leaders about how to build efficiency in their teams, create time for strategy, and ultimately get results. With your host, Megan Weiss. Let's jump right in. Today, my guest is Victor Wong. Victor is the CFO of Flip, a planning and savings app that helps shoppers provide for their families by making life more affordable. As CFO, Victor is responsible for leading the development and successful execution of Flip's strategy, as well as the operational effectiveness of the company. Prior to assuming the role of CFO, Victor established and scaled both the content operations and finance teams. Leading content operations, he formed a 140-member team, working with 1,500-plus retailers to deliver local savings and deal content to shoppers across North America. In leading the finance team, he helped raise more than $60 million in two rounds of financing. Before joining Flip, Victor spent eight years at Ernst & Young, six years in the assurance practice, and two years in the transaction advisory services group, working on both buy-side integration and transaction diligence. Victor graduated from Western University with an honors business administration degree. He also holds a chartered professional accountant's designation. Victor, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, hi, Megan. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Uh, today, we'll be talking a bit about your experience and how to scale quickly when working in a hyper-growth environment, all while implementing processes, structure, and systems, and, and of course, managing change. So, uh, first of all, tell me a bit about yourself and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, great. Uh, so to all your listeners, my name is Victor Wong and I'm the CFO of Flip Corporation. If you haven't heard of us, we are a free shopping app that helps shoppers provide for their families by making life more affordable. And my role here as CFO is an interesting one. Um, it isn't your traditional head of finance role only. I also lead the company's strategy in both the development and execution. And also, given the, the finance role and the finance in, uh, role in nature, also look after the operational effectiveness of the company. So that's, that's where it keeps it interesting. And in terms of kind of my evolution um, at Flip, it, the CFO role isn't the only hat I've worn. So I've been at Flip now for nine plus years, almost 10. Um, I was team member 21, I believe, if I, if I recall correctly, back, back in the lexicon. And so I've also actually helped the operations team and also dabbled uh, with running the engineering dad teams as well for a short period of time. So seen, seen various different things, um, got exposed to various different things as well. So that's definitely kind of the model that I operate on is, is never take no for an answer and always look for each of these projects as a challenge. Um, and so that's always been how, how I kind of see the world. One of the big things that has helped me to get to where I am today is also listening to feedback. So everyone that I've worked with has a different point of view and different perspectives. So it's always interesting to kind of take a step back and sit and actually listen to what others have to say. And if someone's willing to actually give you time and give you that feedback, take that time to listen to it. And I think that's really has helped me get to where I am today is listening to that feedback and then also um, pursuing things that people say can never be done, but seeing it all the way through until you deliver the results. Yeah, to your point about the feedback, it's not always comfortable to, to get that feedback, but um, if you can take it and turn it into something positive, it's always great for your career. No, it absolutely is. Absolutely is. 
Uh, and you mentioned that you were team member 21. What is Flip up to now? Yeah, so Flip, um, just again, a little bit more for, for your audience here. Um, like I said, we're a free app that helps shoppers provide for their families. Um, but behind the scenes, at the crux of this, we are a, real, a retail technology company. So our focus here is really to reinvent the way that people shop. And we work with 90 plus percent of North America's large retailers and merchants to help transform their business by connecting them with millions of shoppers out there through our, through our digital experience. I think that's the main key is our digital first. A lot of the advertisements before were, were still focused on the paper aspect, the really tactile aspect of it. And we are trying to lead the way with our merchant partners to, to say, how do you think about that digital first? And what does that actually look like um, in terms of delivering a message to the shoppers out there? And out of curiosity, how does the app work? Yeah, so um, it's one of the big things for us is really around the weekly shop. That's where we want to ensure that we are providing the most value to the chief decision maker. That's what, that's what we call it. The chief household um, decision maker is providing them with that ability to find their local savings and deals. So we know how difficult it is, especially uh, has, what has happened over the past year and a half or so with COVID, uh, you know, job losses and things like that. And the cost of, you know, just living has gone up. And so we've, like I said, our mission here is to provide for their families, to, to help shoppers provide their families by making life more affordable. So we help them find the locals and savings and deals that are around them. And so it all starts off with your zip code. You punch your zip code into our app and it shows you the stores that are around you. And I think one of the things that I'm most proud of is the, uh, our ability to provide shoppers and our users with the ability to find things that they're trying to, trying to provide for their families on a weekly basis. So like, where's the best place to find chicken breast to cook that meal or if you're vegetarian, where's that best place to find the spinach or kale? And our app is, I would say it's, it does a great job at that because we do work with the retail partners on providing that type of content to our users. So, so that's really how it works. Like you go in there you see the weekly shopping ads and there's a search feature and you can actually look for products that you're interested in purchasing for your family. But we try to provide that in a very easy to use format. And obviously being in, uh, having it on an app on your phone makes it much more convenient than say piece of paper or, 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 or other mechanisms for advertising. Yeah, that's awesome. So, so important these days. I mean, not only because you know, so many people are out of a job, but it just seems like prices right now are skyrocketing. Right. Yeah, exactly. So as you look back uh, throughout your career, are there any particular stories or moves that, that stand out in your mind as turning points for you? Yeah, I, I would say that, 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 that there definitely are. Um, so I, I, I would tend to say I had the traditional finance upbringing to get to, to where I am today. Um, graduated from a business degree. Um, and the goal was there to get my accounting designation. So after, after university, um, I was lucky enough to join one of the big four. So I actually joined Ernst Young and spent about six years in the audit practice and then two years in their M&A group doing post-merger integration and due diligence. So definitely the kind of the traditional accounting um, upbringing for me, working at the firm uh, right out of uh, university. And so... In professional services, as, as you can imagine, you get exposed to a variety of situations, experiences. 
but you're never really the decision maker in any, any of those situations. You're usually there spending time looking at the problem, looking at the data, doing an analysis and making the recommendations through usually a report writing or a presentation, but you're never there to one, make the decisions. And sometimes based on the way that engagements works, you, you don't even know actually what decision got made because you already moved on to another engagement. So I definitely learned a lot of the firm, but spending eight years there really, really kind of like honed in on what I wanted to do next in my career. It really was about owning something and taking that responsibility and that accountability and be able to be that decision maker because I, like I said, I, I truly wanted to own the decision and be accountable for something something that is important to move the business forward. And so I would say that that's, that's probably the, the turning point on, um, on what I have seen in my career. It's like, I could have definitely continued my career at Ernst Young. It was a great place. Uh, like I said, great place to learn, great place to start. But that's when an opportunity at Flip popped up. And it was at that time that I decided to make that move because of my desire to, again, uh, be part of the business, be part of the management teams that actually shapes shapes the future of that business. And needless to say, that was definitely a, a big step in the career because not only was it out of the comforts, uh, let's say, of a, a well-established company like Ernst Young, it was going to a startup. And then at the same time, I also had my first uh, child. <laughs> so all in all, a combination of factors, but happy I took that risk and happy to... Uh, or um, happy to kind of make that next step in my career at that. Yeah, having come up through public accounting myself, I can relate that you can make a lot of recommendations, but you're not uh, you're not ever the one that's actually implementing anything. No, no, absolutely. And, and so based on kind of experiencing that, like I said, I, I could have been there for many more years uh, to come because you do get that breadth of experience uh, seeing various industries. It's definitely never boring. But like I said, I think I value that ability to own something and be accountable and responsible. And so that was that was kind of what I learned about myself through that career journey and uh, caused me to kind of take that next step. So let's touch a bit about what you've accomplished since you started at Flip. Yeah, great. Um, so like I, like I mentioned, uh, team member 21. Um, so we were fairly small and this was... 2011 when I joined. So that definitely goes back in time. Um, and so been very proud of being part of a leadership team that has shaped the growth of the company. So seeing it from being employee or team member 21 to now we're almost uh, at 400 uh, team members strong. Um, some of the accomplishments I would say that I've, I've led at the, uh, at the business was building that operations team, even though, and I'll get into this in a second, um, building an operations team from scratch um, to now that's 100 plus strong and services over 500 retailers uh, across North America. That was definitely an accomplishment. Um, and just to wind it back, I was asked to run finance, obviously on paper as part of the offer letter. But on my first day coming in, um, the CEO at the time also said, hey, like, how, are you, uh, do, do you know anything about processes? How about you take on this operations team as well? So, <laughs> so happy to take that challenge on, like I mentioned. But uh, that was how I got my kind of for, first foray into operations. Um, and so with both wearing both those hats, uh, like I said, helped build the operations team as well, but also helped on the finance side raise uh, our Series B and C, uh, a total of more than $60 million in funding. So that was also exciting. <laughs> 
to kind of dabble in that finance side. But I think the, the thing that I was most proud of uh, over my time at Flip so far is seeing the culture and the team members thrive. So individuals and team members that you've coached in the past or managed in the past, seeing them develop into leaders and seeing them carry on the same attitude, the principles and the values that you've talked to them about before in your in your one-on-ones and your in your coaching sessions and seeing them instill that to others. Uh, that 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 was really something that that uh, I was definitely proud of seeing that in action the first time. Um, having someone still talk about those principles that we we've discussed in in a previous one-on-one years ago, and seeing that team kind of continue that path of growth. That's something that I'm I'm, I'm pretty proud of uh, being able to build that type of uh, culture, principles, and values. Yeah, and having worked at both large and small companies, <clears throat> I can relate to the fact that, you know, a smaller company allows you to wear so many more hats, uh, which mm-hmm. I find to be uh, interesting and uh, keeps life, you know, it keeps work fun. So, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so we all know that 2020 was a difficult year. As you look back on let's say the last 12 months, what have been your greatest challenges? And is there anything that you would have done differently? Yeah, um, we're kind of reflecting on, on um, and we're, we're, we're in Canada, so we're, we're definitely not out of the woods yet uh, in terms of the, the pandemic that's, that's uh, impacting us. But I think w- one of the greatest challenges that I, if I kind of reflect back on the year and a half or so that's been, it's really around this expectations that as the leader, as the CFO of the company, for example, or as even just part of the management team, there's a general expectation that you know everything. And I think that's definitely not the case. And I would suggest any of your listeners, if they have that type of expectations, to kind of throw that out the door. Especially with the pandemic, you can be a student of history and kind of look in the past and how things got done. But no one has really ever faced this. And I, I personally definitely not have face a business situation like this that has been impacted uh, from the pandemic itself. And so I, I think looking back, it was definitely uh, okay and celebrated, I think, a little bit to come out and say that I actually don't know and I don't have a to have a concrete way of dealing with this, but to the team and let them know that, but here's what I do know. And based on that, here is the plan and really bring the team along in part of those conversations. Um, I think that's one of the things that the, our team, based on the feedback that they've provided us, have really appreciated that. Uh, being that, being vulnerable and not saying, you know, come out and, and do a town on and say, yeah, like we got this, <laughs> here's like the 10-step plan and we're out of here uh, and out of this pandemic, right? But it's really around like, how do you communicate to them? How do you let them know that we uh, empathize with the situation? We understand what everyone's going through. Uh, we don't know exactly how to deal with this, but like I said, here's what we do know and here's the game plan. And so communication definitely is key and inviting the team to be part of that thought process, not just the execution is also key because they need to understand the why. Um, the other thing that I've uh, learned from a communication perspective is we communicate to them what the goal is. Like, what are we trying to do here and what purpose does that goal serve? Uh, instead of commenting or communicating just like, hey, here are the strategies or here are the, the tactics. So for us, over the past, uh, when we started at the beginning of the pandemic, it's, it was really about ensuring the company um, and ensuring the team members of the company that 
we will do everything in our power as management to ensure the company continues, right? To continue as a as going concern, but while at the same time protecting jobs. So we we flat out came out and communicated that to the team, and I think that actually set everyone at ease for the most part because when the pandemic started, like there was so much uncertainty in the world. Um, to create that type of uncertainty and not come out like upfront as, as management and, and say that to the team, that these are our goals and objectives, I think that would have been a disservice. So we, we did, we came out and said that to the team instead. Um, this is what we're gonna do. This is what, what we're focused on. And here are the specific actions we're gonna do to, 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 uh, to, to achieve those goals. And so I think that, that actually calmed a lot of nerves down and it allowed the team to focus kind of on the task at hand. So, so that was, I think that was one of the positive things that we came away with is that communication. Now, if I had to do anything over again, I think it'd be really around how do we communicate? Because um, I'm not sure if, if uh, most of your listeners or even yourself are remote working, but remote working creates a whole different communication style or challenges yeah. because we're so used to being in person. So anything that we used to do communicate broadly would be in, in a town hall type format. And obviously you won't be, you're not able to do that in, in a remote working situation. So we had to adopt the communication styles. And so we started putting out these, these uh, recorded videos that allowed our team to absorb the message at their own pace, at their own time. But then something that we learned was that wasn't necessarily enough. Like we put out these videos and we would hear some feedback. And so what we decided to do kind of later on, I would say in the summertime towards Q3, was that not only did we put out the videos, but we actually had like a live Q&A where um, team members would submit questions to management and we would answer them live. So I think that's what something I would have done differently is like have that also as part of the communication kind of package right off the bat. But that was something that we learned over time, how to best communicate to our team uh, in a way that is most impactful, so. Yeah, that's great advice and um... Yeah, communication. I mean, it differentiates a great leader and a, a good company to work for. People want transparency and honesty, and they want to know what's going on. Yeah, no, yeah, they, they definitely do. So, what advice can you offer for companies that are in hyper growth mode? Uh, how can they scale quickly um, without maybe sacrificing quality or destroying that startup culture? Yeah. I think I've read somewhere and I can't necessarily remember where to quote this number, but I think they talked about once your company gets to a certain size, you start to, you as, as either the founder or as management needs to be more mindful of that type of communication. I think from a personal experience, I would say that's probably around like team member number 50, where once you kind of cross over that threshold, and obviously it's not a black and white threshold, um, that you have to be more mindful of how you communicate, going back to, to, to the point that you made earlier, how important communication is. I think we take for granted, at least I remember, uh, we take for granted the fluidity of our communication when we were uh, at that startup phase where literally like we we're sitting back to back in a really cramped office and uh, you, you know, you turn your, you turn your chair around and like the whole team is already there. So you, you actually have a conversation right in front of everybody and there is no missed messages or lost messages or anything that's lost in translation because the communication would be in such real time and the discussions would be in real time that it didn't didn't really um, cause too uh, too much uh, miscommunication on that fact. 
But once, as, as you can imagine or, or visualize at, you know, a size of 50 plus, it gets harder and harder. People are in different offices, potentially people are on different floors. And so the communication there is definitely key to both to your points about um, without like, sacrificing quality and still be aligned to the goals and objectives of the company, but also not uh, about destroying your culture. And I would say, I would say for those that are, are still in the early stage startup, culture is definitely something to keep in mind, but nothing that needs to necessarily get memorialized yet. One of the things that we've done was at around team number 50, we started to, to discuss as a management team um, things that we were the non-negotiables, right? So what are our principles? What are our values that we stand for, um, for this company? And we started writing those things down. Um, one of the things I do want to caution uh, your listeners would be make sure that it's focused on principles and values and not rules-based. Because once you convert these, these um, kind of cultural um, words or statements into a rules-based format, then it loses its meanings. Because a culture doesn't necessarily thrive unless people understand the why uh, behind them. And I'm lucky enough, like I said, being in, uh, someone that's been early on. I can provide a story or a situation uh, to every single cultural and principle values that we have established as a team um, because I lived and breathed all those things. And so the thought there is how do you replicate that type of feeling, that experience um, with words? And, and so writing it down from a principles of value perspective and providing that to the growing team is very important. But then you also can't just, it, it can't just live on a piece of paper. Um, the piece of paper is a start, but the rest of the team who has been there, done that, got the t-shirt uh, concept, has to help reinforce those behaviors. Um, and that, that sometimes ha- means having that uncomfortable conversation because you're calling out bad behaviors as well. But like I said, again, people need to understand why we're doing this. And I would say that's where the cultural values and trying to ensure the culture actually, you know, holds true and continues to scale the business. Those are, those are the key things, writing them down, uh, what they are and having people understand the why, but also making sure that everyone lives out the, uh, lives out the culture on a day-to-day basis and not be afraid to call out bad behaviors. Yeah. I like that. So holding true to what's important, but allowing the company to continue to evolve as well. Mm -hmm. So, As many businesses mature and outgrow the startup phase, many of them lack the processes that are necessary to function efficiently. So having Mm -hmm. done it before, how do you build structure in an organization and implement processes? Yeah, this this was was probably a fun answer here. I think the first thing is for the entire team, and it can't just be a few because everyone has to be bought into scaling up the business. So like you've got the startup with which is the hyper growth that you mentioned earlier, but how do you scale up that success? And a lot of times, um, at least what I've experienced is a lot of people, once they experience that success, they don't necessarily see that need for change. Right. And so the first thing I would, I would suggest is making sure that people do understand the why um, and the, and the need to make that change so that you're no longer a startup, but you're more of a scale up. And so a personal story here would be we experienced some pretty, you know, exponential growth in our early years as Flip. 
And so as the, you know, as the, as the CFO and the head of finance, um, the question was always like looking ahead at the future and w- to your point, wanting to install some processes, again, not to, not to the, like the nth degree and install process for process sake, sake, but process to help actually scale up the business. And I, I did get a lot of resistance in the business because they were like, why? Like, why do we need to do this? Like, we're like, you, you see our growth percentage, just like it's, it's continuing to, to grow. Uh, you know, we're a great product market fit. Like, why, why are we spending time working on processes and, and things like that, right? And that was the challenge, right? That was the challenge for me to be able to articulate that to the company. Uh, and, and right or wrong, I, I wasn't that successful at doing it at the first time. Uh, I'm definitely <laughs> a lot more successful in the recent years. So this is probably the second and third try that I've done to articulate that. But it, it, was, it was definitely that. It was like making sure that people understand the why of doing that to, because again, people see it, uh, processes extra work. Where the, the narrative actually is, is not processes extra work, is that processes allow the company to actually think about the next opportunity and be a lot more planful at how they want to execute and, and go after the opportunity. Because a lot of startups, um, you know, there's the there's a little bit of that shiny optic syndrome where we kind of chase the next opportunity, and it's great, it's entrepreneurial, it's fun, it's exciting, but when the world is your oysters, you, you gotta be able to pick and choose what are the right opportunities, and timing is also everything as well. So having processes there, I think this is what I was would, would, would tell everybody is that it actually allows you to move faster because you have thought through. Yeah. And you've analyzed um, kind of the, the opportunities at hand without necessarily like running a test and learn continuously as you as you navigate it. So process-wise, I would say that that is that is important to have a plan, but also definitely to understand what the goals of the companies are, and then what is the strategy that the company wants to take to achieve those goals. And once you have that, and I, and I know these are words that I'm saying, but once you have that, I think it's it's it makes it very it makes it easier to actually have that decision-making framework, but it's to outline where you want to go in that two to five to 10 years, um, the strategy that needs to get there. And then you put it together, a plan to bring that strategy to life. I think those are, I mean, those are the general steps I would recommend around scaling up the business because yeah, definitely like we've, we've experienced some challenges, not having a well thought through strategy and plan. And what advice can you offer companies who are feeling growing pains in the form of their systems? Uh, we all know that implementing a new system is painful. So how can you choose the right one, not only for just right now, but also with the future in mind? Yeah, I can definitely go into that. I'll, I'll start off with, the, with a quick example since we're, uh, you know, since we're talking about finance. And it was about our accounting system. And, uh, and hopefully this will illustrate uh, the point to your listeners uh, about picking the right systems. So again, p- like picture this, like this was like 10, 10 years ago, uh, 2011. Uh, it was me and an account manager that was working on finance specifically. And we were on QuickBooks, yeah. right? We were on QuickBooks. And it wasn't a cloud-based version of QuickBooks by any means. It was the uh, old format of QuickBooks where I remember this vividly, where we would save the file into USB key, <laughs> and we would we would trade USB keys depending on who wanted to work for uh, work on the file. And so there was numerous times where we had like colliding files, version control issues, but that's that's how we that's how we started. 
And so what, as the company got bigger, uh, even just, just that specific problem of sharing the accounting information was becoming cumbersome. We decided obviously to embark on, on getting an accounting system that would kind of set us up for the future, right? So this would be probably to look at like year two, three, and four and beyond of the, of the, uh, of the business and so on. And so again, like, you know, coming, uh, looking for an account system, I'm sure again, to, to your listeners, they, they've definitely got the pitches from, you know, Great Plains, NetSuite, all those ERP systems that everyone's heard of. And when, when we did the RFP, uh, one of the big things was really understanding how that system was actually going to work for us versus us working off, like for the system. And so I think that's the a RFP great way to look at it. I mean, that's a great way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I'll give you a couple of examples to, to kind of bring that point out. The understanding kind of what the business needs is very important. So put that in your RFP as like the criteria of, of what you're looking for. And the having like a world-class system is not going to solve any of your issues to be actually be quite honest. It's, it's actually going to make it worse because when we had those initial pitches from NetSuite and Great Plains, I remember this, this question like vividly. It's like, as we're, because we're in the start uh, stage and scaling up, I asked, I think, the consultant, and, and that's like the first, that, that was my first kind of clue in that, that this could be trouble, uh, was that I had to go through the, a system implementation with a, with a consultant, was that I told, I, I told the individual, like, I'm not sure actually what our chart of accounts is, because it's going gonna, it's gonna to evolve. Um, you know, we've got new lines of business, we've got new products, we've got new expenses, we've got new strategies, right? So I actually don't know how how our, like, here's our existing chart of accounts, but I'm actually not sure if you want me to lay out this new chart of accounts, I need to evolve, right? I guess evolve the business. And so I asked the person, I was like, so if I do want to make that change after the system implement gets implemented, how, how am I going to do that? And they're like, well, you have to contact me. I'm like, oh, <laughs> so every time I want to make a change, change to the chart of accounts, I need to reach out to you. And they're like, yes, because we need to do like a black backend implementation on it. And so I don't know what the system is. And, and, and I hope none of your listeners would take this as, as, a, as a knock about any of the system because it's not. But that's how I was communicated about, um, about that product. <laughs> so I thought to myself, I'm like, oh, that's not very helpful. I, I, like, I want to ensure that I'm basically in full control of my accounting system because going back to that point, it needs to work for us. Like I can't. I can't work for it. And so we actually ended up, we're off the system now, but this system serves as well. We, we selected an online cloud-based system because when we got down to the root of it, we didn't need all the bells and whistles that your, the NetSuite, the Great Plains um, system offer. <laughs> Going back to the example, we really needed something that was actually pretty basic because our, our account system at that time or our accounting transactions wasn't that complicated. We just needed something to solve the problem of sharing. <laughs> So we, we set up that cloud-based system. It was on a monthly subscription fee. So it was like $40 a month. I can edit my own chart of accounts, uh, but it serves great. It serves great for that, for, for that phase of, of growth, for that scale-up, because we, we were collaborative because uh, everything was on the cloud. We didn't have to worry about upgrading our versions. And then when the time our auditors came, which was, was really awesome, was the fact that we would track all like all the invoices were automatically 
either taken in through email and stored in the accounting system, or we would scan it in. And most of the time, by that time, everyone was just emailing PDFs, right? So when the time the auditor came in, um, they would just log in, like we give them like a read access um, login to our account software, and that was taken care of. Like we didn't have to pull any uh, necessary files for them. And so wrapping this whole kind of like the story up, um, going back for your listeners, is really around making sure you understand what you need out of that system. Like what are some of the pain points that you're trying to experiencing and potentially experiencing down the road? And don't look for that kind of everlasting solution. You will always probably evolve, right? As the business evolves, um, the systems will need to evolve as well. But what will serve you for the next two to five years? What are some of those pain points? Can you foresee some of those pain points? And so write that all down and then go through an RFP process where um, as you look at the systems that are out there, does, does, do those systems satisfy those, those criteria? And then obviously talk to your peers and your colleagues, uh, those that have used the systems, because I've heard various, you know, various pros and cons directly from them, but you could also get, get an understanding of how they've used it and kind of mirror that to, to how you will be using those systems. But yeah, definitely choosing the right one is making sure that you are, uh, the system's working for you, not you're working for the system. Yeah, I love that advice. Um, and that's a great story. I, I feel like some companies, you know, they they want the world-class systems, but sometimes those world-class systems just magnify problems in the form of millions of customizations that, that yes. need to occur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so let's talk about a topic that's of personal interest to me. Um I work for a company that is an outsourcer. So what are your thoughts on outsourcing? Yeah, so when we, so I, I give you a little bit of a background uh, to my answer. And when we were, when we were starting out, when we looked at the business, we, based on how we were operating and our aspirations, I did some back of the napkin math and, and there was no way we could necessarily keep the current uh, in-house model for the way that we were working with the aspirations. So as I mentioned, like we work with 90% plus of uh, North American merchants and retailers. And so with that type of aspiration, we couldn't, like uh, a model of having everyone in-house on our operations team would not have worked. That was that was the background of that map. And so we were looking at various options and outsourcing wasn't the, the thing that just popped into our mind uh, at first. So we're looking at, um, some automation, we were looking at how we're reducing some of the scope. But when, when we played it all out on, onto, uh, onto the plan, none of those things actually made sense. And so the outsourcing thing was one of the things that actually made a lot of sense as we discovered it and as we considered it. I think one of the things um, to me that's very important about outsourcing is keeping your team internally lean, but then also giving them the opportunities to develop and grow. I think that's that's like a very key crux of outsourcing. The outsourcing strategy to me is is uh, is that, and and so when I um, look at it, it's really about how do you find opportunities for your team to develop and grow, knowing that the transactional work still needs to be done. Like the transactional work's not going to go away. Uh, you the volume probably will increase as your company grows as well. But how do you take care of that without necessarily leveraging internal resources? Because internally, they could do bigger and better things. 
and they can and and for someone to keep you know it's not very motivating from a from a management perspective to to have someone constantly doing transactional work either right so so that was that was kind of the philosophy of outsourcing and it was pretty there's definitely some benefits of outsourcing as well for us so we've through the operations world uh, we worked with vendors out actually in India and Philippines and one of the biggest things was the time zone difference. Um, so Philippines being 12 hours, if I remember correctly, and India being nine hours, you get that benefit of time, right? So you get that 24-7 type operations without necessarily staffing internally for one. Yeah. That, is, that, is a great, uh, that is a great model to have because you could, you know, set it up so that, so that you kind of head home uh, from your day out in North America and then on the other side of the world, they pick up the work and continue working on it. So it's 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 a nonstop way to continue and kind of leverage that time. And so that's that's been great for us, um, getting that type of efficiency from a time zone perspective. And and then the the other thought there is really around you know when we looked at content, uh, when we look at outsourcing, some of our decision making framework to outsource work is really around the process complexity. So picture like a two by two matrix process complexity, and then the context required to do the work. And so context required is always a difficult one. So if you are, say, running like an onboarding with a, with a client, that's probably work that's probably not outsourceable um, because of the context required to navigate through those conversations. But if you can, if you can put that in a process, if you could put that and put some guardrails around it using systems, then that might be a possibility. So this speaks to the process complexity of it. If you can reduce the, the process complexity through um, through systems and additional guidance, then that's these these tasks these tasks are ripe for outsourcing. Now the the other point I would also mention is that given my time in, in operations, I've also ported some of those methodologies to finance, and it's it's great. You get the same benefits, the time zone, the uh, the team development, all those benefits. Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of uh, outsourcing. Yeah, and I mean all of the all of the benefits you mentioned are, are things that I see as well. Like uh, a lot of our clients are able to staff appropriately because of outsourcing. They can now afford, uh, you know, the right team size. And you're right. I mean, no, there's not very many people out there that like the transactional work that's associated specifically with finance and accounting. Um, so why not just give that to someone else and allow them to focus their time in ways where, you know, they're, they're providing value for the company. Yeah. And, and I've seen, so the, the one of the main, um, if I could describe it from a visual perspective, since we're on the podcast, one, one of the things I've seen, and, and this is a great articulation of like finance type work is the traditional finance work is, is more built upon like a pyramid. So at the, at the very bottom is your transactional work. At the t- very top is, is, is your strategy. And the size of that, that kind of a width you could picture a pyramid is probably your time spent on, on, on that type of work. Yep. And for the most part, it is transactional because you're going to process invoices, you get to do your general entries, you get to do your reconciliations and all those things. But what I really like is the, the in the same kind of um, article that I saw was how do you convert that pyramid into a diamond? So your transactions actually are still at the bottom, but it's reduced. Um, and then you're doing more of that analysis work, which is kind of that middle layer before you go from, from strategy to analysis to transactions. So 
So how do you minimize that transaction work? Focus the team more on the analysis because that's where it helps the rest of the business make decisions if they have the right data points, if they had the right analysis, if they have it in a timely fashion. Those how you, this is how finance to support the business in making uh, the right decisions. Yeah. And so I think the outsourcing model, that, that is, um, in my opinion, the best way to get that, aside from, say, automation, but that's the best way to kind of knowing that transaction work is so hard to minimize that for the internal team and kind of take that pyramid into that diamond shape so that your internal team can focus more on the um, kind of the next, you know, next level work, that analysis work to support the rest of the business. Yep. And that's a great visual, the pyramid to the diamond. Um, so as a CFO, what are your greatest concerns these days? Uh, what exactly is keeping you up at night? The thing that's keeping me up today is, is given the, pandem- the pandemic and how it's changed the market, I think there's a real opportunity for the businesses tended to, to help establish the new normal. I think I've heard the terminology of like, you know, what, what is normal, the new normal, all these things. But I think there's a, there's a great opportunity for the businesses today to work differently and um, establish the, that kind of new norm. And so the thing you said about is, is really around like resource and, and capital deployment. So how do you actually use the dollars that you have uh, today to make the right investments into the future? I think one of the biggest ones for us is really around talent. And since we're talking about outsourcing as well, like talent has now with the, you know, with Zoom calls, Google Meets, et cetera, yeah. I think a lot of businesses are, are open to remote working. And so it really, like this past year and a half has really kind of removed the stigma around remote working. And so if you play that out, removing, removing that remote working stigma has really opened up for companies to find talent almost globally. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah, anywhere. So I think most would still prefer some, some sort of time zone overlap, but really at the end of the day, like you, it's now gone global. No longer are you limited to that local population that your office has like a, I don't know, driving radius of say 20 miles or whatever uh, or whatnot, but it's it's now opened up globally. And so the war on talent is, is definitely a thing and we feel it uh, at our company. And so it's like, how do you make the right investments now? How do you set the right process and systems to support uh, that type of hiring? Again, like obviously talk, talking about on, a, on a finance perspective, uh, the taxes, all the uh, complications with uh, employment law and things like that. But that aside, how do you deploy a talent strategy that now needs to be global for you for for you to compete and stay competitive? Uh, I think that's that's definitely something that we're still working on. I don't have an answer at all, but that's definitely what's keeping me up at that at night. Yeah, and going back to one of your earlier points, I'm sure that's also where process and structure comes in handy. When the whole workforce is remote, I, I'm sure things like that become exponentially more important. Yeah, and that and like us trying to figure out how to continue to your to the question about culture. How do you continue that in a virtual environment? Because there are certain things like, uh, as I mentioned, like calling out bad behaviors and, and seeing those things and reinforcing those things. Um, happen more naturally, I would say, in an uh, in-person setting uh, or at, as naturally as it can. The virtual one had, needs, to, needs to be adopted a bit. Like, I mean, we, we've been only in this world for about a year and a half, although it feels like 10 years. <laughs> I've been sitting, sitting at my desk, um, you know, at, at home, uh, taking over my son's room here. 
but yeah, the uh, I think that that ways of working is very different, and to make it the most effective, uh, it's going to be interesting. Especially now, you're layering on potentially people that you might never meet in person because because they're halfway around the world. Um, but those are definitely some things to con- consider. Uh, yeah, and it's 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 those things are uh, definitely keeping you up, up at night. Yeah, well, I'm sure you're not the only company out there that's wondering how they're gonna you know, establish a culture or keep their culture in a remote work environment. It's going to be a challenge and I guess it's uh, to be determined. Mm -hmm. So lastly, now that we're well into 2021, what's one goal, either personal or professional, that you're hoping to achieve this year? I I started on this, this, um, I think I figured out a way to to kind of like um, find more time to think. I think that that's been a goal that I started uh, at the beginning of 2021, given all the demands now, especially kind of blending personal life and, and work life being at home, is that everyone has demands, right? Everyone has, you know, family demands, personal demands, and, and work demands. But having having all those things kind of come at a forefront, there's no, there's almost like no physical compartmentalizing anymore because, like I mentioned, I'm sitting, I'm sitting uh, talking to you in my son's room right now versus like being in the office. So there's no necessary compartmentalizing between personal, family, and and uh, and work. Is how do you how do you give yourself that that thinking time uh, versus constantly reacting to what the world throws at you? And so finding finding more time to think, I think it's been pretty beneficial uh, for me. I've I kinda, I've never done this before, but before the start of every single day now, I actually, um, you know, go for about a 30-minute walk around my neighborhood, around the block. Phone's still in my pocket, but I'm not listening to anything. I'm just listening to my own thoughts. And I think that's been that's been immensely helpful in being able to kind of calm down the mind and kind of focus on just thinking, right? Thinking through business problems, personal problems, et cetera. And I've gotten a lot of benefit from it. So that's a goal that I think I want to continue is how do, we, how do I be less reactive to what the world throws at me, but a lot more thoughtful and deliberate uh, about taking action at the things that are necessary to do. So yeah, that, that's what I hope to continue in 2021. <laughs> yeah, I love that. And to your point about taking the walk, like I, I find that exercise is such a great way mm-hmm. to just clear your mind and yeah. you know forget about your problems for just a little bit. <laughs> yeah, at least a little bit, yes. <laughs> Victor, thank you so much for your time today. No problem, Megan. Thanks for having me on, on your show. Yeah, I really enjoyed our discussion and getting to know you and hearing about your experiences. It's not always easy leading in a hypergrowth environment and managing all the change associated with it, but you've given us some great advice. And to all of our listeners, I hope you've enjoyed today's discussion as well, and I hope you'll tune in next week. Until then, take care of yourselves and have a great week. If you're ready to boost efficiency and streamline your accounting processes at significant cost savings, it's time to talk with Personiv. Their people-powered solutions have transformed the delivery of back office tasks and general accounting functions for decades, partnering with clients to provide everything from accounts payable to payroll services. See what Personiv can do for you by visiting personiv.com. You've been listening to CFO Weekly presented by Personiv. Please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear all of our episodes. Want to learn more? Check out personiv.com. Thanks for listening.